<laughs> we don't want you to miss your bagel, Mike. You served well. Get your reward. Well, since we're on the topic of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're talking about time. And guess what happens next week? Yes, already. You know, you're going to lose one hour next week. Sorry. So make certain you reset your clocks next Saturday night so you'll be here on time. Uh, you know, it's, this time of year is tax time. We pay back the government on our taxes. Now it's time to pay back the hour they loaned us last October. <laughs> so anyway, remember that. Daylight savings time begins next Sunday. Next Sunday, just one week away. It's already here. Can't believe it's going by so fast. Right. <laughs> Spring forward. One hour forward. You lose one hour. I always get a kick as to why they have that at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I never wait till then to reset it. <laughs> why they Why do they have it at 2 o'clock, Mark? That's okay. Night shifts and bars. That's there. We got it. Okay, let's go back to where we were last week. Last week, we just got a brief introduction to chapter 3 and uh, said we'd come back and cover it this week. Remember, we talked about this statement time, it keeps everything from happening all at once. You know, that's kind of a nice thought, isn't it, to remember? that without time, everything might happen all at once. The sweet by and by is where we sometimes have our focus as believers, but it's the nasty now and now we have to live in. And we need to learn to live for the Lord day by day, hour by hour. And uh, this chapter is going to deal with some of those nasties that we face in life and uh, also with the many good things. Remember that God is the one who's the creator of time. He created the sun, moon, and stars, put them in their place, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, and he appointed the seasons, the months, the weeks, the days, the hours. He's the one who's in control. Our creator is in control. When we're looking at uh, this issue about time, we have to remember that God is in control, but we must look above and beyond the sun. We saw that in this passage we have under heaven referred to, and it uh, occurs only three times in the book of Ecclesiastes. All the other uh, statements are under the sun. Here, under the heaven is broader, it's wider, it goes to the residence of God. It means anything that is below God, <laughs> under his control. Gina? S-O-N, and especially when you have it under heaven, you're under the S-O-N, right, good. What is the point of the description of time-oriented uh, events? Uh, that nothing happens haphazardly. God is in control. When we talk about these elements that we go through here in this poem in Ecclesiastes chapter three, the overwhelming concept is God is in control of every single aspect of our lives. Nothing happens haphazardly. And the last thing I showed you last week was this, a little outline from Warren Wiersbe. I kind of like it. It says, look above, verses 1 through 8. That's the poem on time. Look within, in verses 9 through 14, part of the explanation of the meaning of that poem. Look ahead. It's back. Praise the Lord. <laughs> 
okay? Uh, look within, look ahead, verses 15 to 22, and look around in chapter 4. This is Warren Wiersbe's outline of this section. Uh, he's written a number of different books that are, begin with the title B something, and it's his book on Ecclesiastes that uh, he goes through this outline. Now, let's go into the notes that you have. This takes us past the introduction, and we're now down on that section that says a poem on time. It's on that first page of the handout for Ecclesiastes 3. It's down there at the bottom of the page, a poem on time, verses 1 through 8. And when we look at this and we see this poem, it's a good idea here for us to read it so we get an idea of what's about. So let me read it. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is the poem in verses 1 through 8. And as you look at the second page of your handout, you'll see that I've given you a diagram of verse 1 to show you what it is really like in the text, uh, in the original language. It reads, for everything an appointed time, a time for every event. And uh, this type of uh, construction we call a mirror uh, construction or an envelope construction. It's an inverted parallelism, or we call it a chiasm. And the central elements, those two Bs up there, are where the focus is at. It's on time, time. And uh, as we look at this, we're going to find that this is going to be echoed in the last part of the poem in its, in its structure. But uh, as we continue on, I've given you a chart there on that second page also that kind of lays out some of the relationships within this poem. This poem is beautifully symmetrical. Verse 1 has this inverted parallelism. Verse 2 begins with a positive giving birth, the negative dying, the positive planting, the negative uprooting. Verses 3 and 4 begin with the negative first before the positive. Verses 5 through 6 begin with the positive first and then the negatives. And notice that there are four pairs of each of those. And then the last, verse 7, you have the negatives and the positives. And verse 8 is going to be a inverted parallelism just like verse 1. So as we're looking at this, you begin to see this chiastic arrangement the pairs that are inverted from the start to the finish, and then in the middle, you have the same type of arrangement. It's just beautifully symmetrical, very carefully structured and arranged. And when we're talking about that type of thing, then if, if the central elements are where the focus are at, then the central part of these elements, as the overall poem, comes in verses three to six. And as we look at that, we find out that, yes, verses 1 and 2 are more introductory and summarizing. Verses 7 and 8 are the same way. The core of this is in those middle four verses in 3 to 6 that cover so much of what we experience in life. 
And the point is that God is in control of all of these. Verse 8 has loving and hating, making war and making peace. The negatives are in the middle. If you look back at that chart at the top of verse 20, the everything and every event are on the outside. The internal ones are appointed time and time. And uh, those are the positives. It's just the exact opposite of what you have here. And so you could also diagram it this way. If you compare verse 1, notice the black elements there are in the middle. You go down to verse 8, the black elements are in the middle. You go to verse 2, and you see two positives and two negatives. You see 3 and 4 with the negatives first and the positive second. Then in verses 5 and 6, the positives first and the negatives next. And verse 7 has the negatives and the positives just the opposite of verse 2. And so this is a very intricate thing that you begin drawing these brackets and showing the diagram of how this is tied together. And what does it tell us about the author of this? Well, we don't know if, if Solomon himself wrote this, number one. No indication, but he might well have. And it really illustrates someone's wisdom in being able to pair these together in this fashion and to focus on these elements. Uh, this poetry is not something that's very primitive. It's something that's very sophisticated. It's been carefully thought through. Well, we know that Solomon wrote the book, but whether he borrowed this poem, remember he also collected proverbs and poems and songs, or whether he penned this one is more difficult for us to say. It doesn't say who wrote it. And it could very well be Solomon who wrote the poem, as well as the book. All right? Now, the first two words, or, or the two words that we first want to focus on in verse 1 are these two words for time. And you'll notice that one is the idea of an appointed time, where the other one is just time, generally speaking. In other words, there is this concept of appointment that is brought through here. Not just something that happens not just something that just occurs, it's a happenstance, it's by chance. The idea is appointed time, appointed time. And that points us to the concept of, of this all being orderly. God is the creator of orderliness. He's the creator and the setter up of the orderliness of time. He's deeply involved in that as the creator. And that orderliness that is displayed in time and in the events of life and the seasons of the earth and the circuits of the moon and the stars and the planets around this sun and this galaxy, all the things that are in order are all appointed by God. And so he who controls those things and controls time controls the appointed events of time. Now, some look at this and they say, but wait a minute, let's, let's just uh, think about this a little bit. Is this really reflecting God's divine control, his control over all things or not? What is involved here? There are many who would say this talks about things that just happen, just occur. And if we go through them, we can see that, well, yeah, you know, a time to give birth. Now, how many of you, you know, you've, you've given birth to children, you know that there's an appointed time for those births. But sometimes a child comes early, sometimes a child comes late. A time to die. 
think of the event that happened just this past week. I believe it was my wife was telling me about some man who had an auto accident, hit a, hit a uh, tree, got out of his car, and was evidently scared to death, so he urinated in the ditch, but there was a broken power line that he had hit that's down. He's gone. As I told her, it was his time to go. Whether by the accident or whether by electrocution, that's it. You know? And you think of all those other things that have happened. I mean, years ago, there was a jet flying out of Russia that uh, the pilot lost control of the jet and decided he would bail out because he couldn't control it. He bailed out and lived. The jet flew all the way to Holland and landed and killed a 17-year-old boy. Now think of the odds of an individual being struck by that plane that had no pilot, that was out of control, and striking that one individual and one individual only, and he's gone. You know, that's, it's the appointed time, right? And we could go through many others. Think of that dentist that decided that he was going to end it all, got in his own private plane, flew out over the Atlantic, and uh, as he's uh, flying, he decides he's going to commit suicide. <coughs> And so he shoots himself. The plane crashes in the ocean, and they pull him out alive. Everything he did failed. It was not his time. So, you know, we, we look at this and say, is there really an appointed time to die? Yes, there is. Yeah. Right. And, and, and look at the second thing, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Is there a time to plant? I mean, the seed packets even tell us what time to plant. You know, the farmer's almanac. Planting, if we want, if we're serious about planting and getting fruit for our labor, you know, we plant at the right times. It's appointed. Well, that could apply over, but... That's not what it's talking about here. Right here, it's just talking about time to, to plant your crops in the field and when to uproot other crops that uh, are no longer uh, bearing the fruit that they were planted to bear. But you have all of these things. And I, I, we look at some of these and we say, well, some of these could be accidental. They could happen any time. But as you keep looking through this list, you find many that are not that way. There is a clear appointment of time. Uh, a time for war and a time for peace at the end there. Uh, you know, that becomes a time that is agreed upon by warring parties. And they appoint a time, a time for the armistice, a time for signing that peace treaty. These things are all arranged. They're under God's control. Now, we have a problem in verse 5. And that is, verse 5, a time to throw stones, a time to gather stones. Sometimes we can't figure out what in the world that means. Does it mean that uh, you uh, throw stones into an enemy's field to destroy their crops and gather stones out of a field so you can grow crops? Or is it you throw stones out of your field so you can grow crops and you gather stones into a location to build a building or you gather the stones to prepare for war? Or are these gemstones? And is there a time to gather the gems and a time to distribute the gems in commerce? That's another view some have. 
There's even an old Jewish view here that has this uh, dealing with uh, uh, sexual relationships. And so they take it metaphorically. We don't know. I say that broadly, I don't know, okay? I don't know if there's others out there who know, but all the 31 commentaries I look at, it seems like everyone's admitting that they don't know either exactly what this is all about. But we do know that if it follows the pattern the way we have all the other patterns, then the first one is something positive or advantageous, and the second one is negative or disadvantageous. And if it is not that way, then it breaks up the entire symmetry of the poem. It'd be the only thing that would be out of line. But see, that still doesn't answer all the questions that are involved in it. But when we get to heaven, maybe we'll find out. The Lord will explain to us exactly what this meant. The idea is there's an appointed time to do one, there's not, or, and there's a point in time to do the other, whether it's positive or negative. So that problem, verse 5, will remain a problem for some time to come. It's one of those areas where in Ecclesiastes, the world's wisest man has a stumped. All right? That's all there is to it. But even though we're stumped on the meaning of that one half of a verse, it does not change the overall meaning and teaching of this poem. Verse 7 perhaps has to do with the concept of mourning for those who have passed away, a time to tear apart. In other words, to rend, to tear the garments, and a time to uh, uh, sew back together when the mourning period is over and you begin normal life anew. A time to be silent. Remember Job's friends came and sat in silence for seven days, mourning his loss of his ten children, mourning the loss of his livelihood, all the herds and flocks, mourning with him over the loss of his health, and then finally speaking after seven days. There's a time finally to speak. Tom? Could this just like in five and seven there? Could it just be everyday life? Uh, I think this is all everyday life. You're, you're clearing your field of stones, or you're building a wall of stones. Right. Yeah, it's all everyday life. It's just that we don't know which yeah. action there is with stones. That's all. All right? Now, as we go into the next part of the poem, we're on page 21, if you have it there in your notes. It's the third page of today's handout. It's uh, the poem's message in verses 9 through 22. Something I really like about the most difficult books of the Bible, like Ecclesiastes and the book of Revelation, is that normally the writer provides us with at least the necessary interpretations to help us understand the whole. And here we have that take place. If we were just looking at this poem of eight verses, we might not catch the most important point of all. But the writer takes the time to explain it to us. Look at verse 9, first of all, and 10 and 11. Verse 9, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. The first concept here is that all these things in, in the poem, in verses 1 through 8, are dealing with things that we do, as Tom mentioned, in everyday life. They have to do with toil. They have to do with labor. They have to do with work. They have to do with the task that God has given to human beings with which we occupy ourselves. But notice the purpose of it all in verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Some translations say beautiful. It's, it's appropriately beautiful. It's beautifully appropriate. You can use both. It works very well. Everything. Notice this answers the problem. If we're going to say, well, is this all accidental and chance, happenstance? No. 
It says everything appropriate in its time. This is the explanation. This is how we know we're correct in seeing that God is in control of these things that happen. He has also, catch this, this is not given to us in the poem. Because the poem is focused on under the sun primarily. But remember the intro to the poem in verse 1 mentioned under heaven. So we're sitting here wondering, well, wait a minute. Everything in verses 2 through 8 and actually 9 and 10 is under the sun. So when is it going to get higher above the sun? Right here, verse 11. He has also set eternity in their heart. That is a fantastic statement. God intends that we deal with eternity. eternity. I gave you a quote there from Daniel Estes in his handbook on the wisdom books and psalms. He says this, humans are bound by time, but they are wired for eternity. I like that. Isn't that a beautiful way to state in summary what this poem is all about? We're bound by time, but we are wired for eternity. They intuitively know that there must be meaning somewhere and that they were made for more than vain toil. There's something beyond the sun. There's something beyond this earth. There's something beyond this life. I mean, people always are asking, why are we here? What's the point of it all? That's right. And how many people do you know ask that question? Just about everyone, right? And does it matter where they live, what country they live in, what language they speak? No. Everyone on planet Earth is asking some of those same questions. Why? Because God put it in their hearts to ask. We have that innate uh, thing that he's created in us that we desire to understand, we desire to know about eternity. Is that part of the image of God? I believe that's part of the image of God, yes. I think that's part of what's in it. So we have this concept then. Our creator made us with this innate inquisitiveness. We have a drive, we have a need, we have a desire to observe, research, and contemplate his creation and our own existence. Uh, I think I cited a book in uh, maybe a previous, no, it's on the very next page. I cited a book for you. It's in footnote number eight at the bottom of the page, a book by Guillermo Gonzalez and J.W. Richards called The Privileged Planet. How our place in the cosmos is designed for discovery. They said this, as we learn more about the seemingly accidental features of our atmosphere and solar system, we begin to recognize a trend. The Earth system offers not only a habitat, place for life, but also a great viewing platform for its inhabitants. It's amazing. I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but they begin with a, uh, a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse that they've gone to India to watch. We were in Bangladesh when that took place, that solar eclipse. can still remember the streets of Chittagong getting quite dark in the middle of the day when the solar eclipse happened. And they were there observing that, and one of the things that they learned from the solar eclipse is that they can actually prove that light can be bent and its speed can be changed. And the only conditions under which you can demonstrate that scientifically is during a total eclipse of the sun. 
Now, where in all the universe can you see a total eclipse of the sun? You might think that, well, hey, Saturn's got moons. Uh, we, we've got moon, ev almost every planet in our solar system has moons. But the moons are either the wrong size, the wrong distance, or the wrong shape, and there is no other planet in our solar system where a total solar eclipse can be observed except planet Earth. Well, that's why this is the only place that has life. Well, that's one of the reasons, all right? But that's the only place. It can only be observed from here. And so they also did a research to see, well, where are we set in our solar system? We are the best place in the solar system to observe the solar system. We're the best place in the solar system on the best planet to observe the sun. We're in the best place in our solar system to observe our galaxy because our solar system is positioned in the galaxy in such a way that we have one of the best views of the Milky Way galaxy as a whole. And they go on and on to demonstrate this. And they also talk about all the areas of discovery and observation that are possible only on planet Earth. Nowhere else in the known universe thus far have they found any place that can match what can be, it, it's obvious then that God put us here to observe these things, right? That's right. That's right. Everything is perfectly designed, both for life and for observation. God made us that way. He put that and he planted it in us, and he gave us a place where we can actually inquire about it and observe. What an amazing God we have, right? It's just astounding. Notice what is said here. This is uh, on over on to page 22, there at the top where you have that paragraph, Solomon's double I know in verses 12 and 14, contrasted with three occurrences of I have seen in verses 10, 16, and 22. As we look at verse 12, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice to do good in one's lifetime. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. And he, he talks about these things that he has seen. In verse 10, he says, I have seen the task which God has given. Verse 16, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness. And in verse 22, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy. Now, we look at these things. These are two different statements. First of all, the idea of knowing is what comes from observation and experience, or uh, excuse me, the knowing comes from the idea of intuitive knowledge. The I've seen comes from observation and experience. We've seen, I use that term, we, we've seen. <laughs> uh, Solomon has used this phraseology before. Look back at chapter 2, verse 13. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. <clears throat> Solomon is talking about his research, his experimentation, and what he's looking for, and he talks very clearly about the observable results of his research, what he has seen. But there's also this that he intuitively knows. Those things he knows because of what God has placed in him, those things he knows because of his relationship to God as a believer. We need to observe those three usages throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and watch what can be learned from observation, what we should know intuitively. 
The enigmas of existence can make people frustrated and fretful, we learn as we go through this. Because all the way through this chapter, we have an undercurrent of Solomon's dissatisfaction. We can't gloss it over. There is something here about what Solomon says. You can tell he is frustrated, he is fretting, he is worrying, he knows that he's going to die soon, he's frustrated by trying to compare what, what death might be like. I mean, all of that is in here. So there's these enigmas that confront us. And I, I have a uh, quote, I wonder if I, yes, gave it here, by William Brown, it's there in that same page on page 22. An awareness of the systemic limitations of human existence is fundamental to cultivating an awe of God. Now, notice how that comes about. We see in verse 12, I know there's nothing better for a man. Verse 13, moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labors, the gift of God. I know, verse 14, that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. What does that mean? We can't change what God has done, right? We can't change it. So why has God done it that way? Look at the last of verse 14. Because God has so worked that men should fear him. This is the first time this has been mentioned. But when the book closes at chapter 12, and you go back there at chapter 12, and you read the conclusion of the matter in verse 13, what does he say is the conclusion of the matter? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the design of God. This is why God has appointed the times in daily life, is it should result in an awe of him, a reverence for him, a fear of him. God does that on purpose. We spend time gaining knowledge and researching, observing what God has given, and the thing we learn is that nothing changes. When we gain knowledge, we gain knowledge that God's in control, right? Even the repetitions. Remember verse 9 of chapter 1, that everything just keeps coming around again. The clouds go up, they drop their rain, the water runs down the mountains into the ocean, the ocean evaporates, the waters come back up, this endless cycle. The wind blows round and round and round and round. The seasons come one after another, one after another, repeated over and over. The sun rises every day, crosses the sky, sets every night, comes back the next day, all these endless cycles. The purpose is to demonstrate that we're not in control. The purpose demonstrate that God's in control and that we ought to fear him. What's, what does Solomon say in Proverbs 1-7 about the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of knowledge. All the knowledge we gain from everything else is nothing compared to the fear of the Lord. We ought to work on that. What does he learn then? He learns that he needs to be searching for something beyond this earth. Do you remember Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16? What was he searching for? A city whose maker, whose creator and maker is God. We need to be searching for something above the sun. 
That's the whole point. It's the point in Hebrews 11. It's the point here that's being talked about. Now, why then do we have this sudden switch in verse 16 to talk about injustice and oppression? What's your thinking? Why does he stop and talk about injustice and oppression? Why this interruption? Everything was going smoothly. We're beginning to get a good picture here, and all of a sudden it transitions. Why? Tom? Everything is rosy. Absolutely. Did your mothers ever tell you that life is not a bed of roses? <laughs> or life is not fair? That was what my father used to tell me. Life is not fair. My mother said it's not a bed of roses. Right? Butch? All right. Absolutely. Sin messes up everything. We're fallen. We're fallen. And the thing is that life still has all of these problems. And the point is that we spend most of our time on earth suffering for one thing or another. Right? And it's because of the fallen condition of man. And therefore, it's something that needs to be dealt with. But notice how he deals with this. He deals with it by focusing on in the future. Yes, there's injustice in life, but guess what? God is judge, God is righteous, and God is determined to bring justice and to establish righteousness. And he sustains us along the way. And he sustains us along the way. So in essence, he's used this to propose hope, a message of hope. Because we need to know that God has a time for judging injustice, and that provides hope for us as human beings. Now, what does this demonstrate about the authorship of Ecclesiastes? Are you surprised that, he's, that Solomon is talking about injustice? Absolutely. That's correct, Gina. Solomon was king of Israel. Therefore, he had the responsibility to judge the people, right? Remember the woman that brought the two women that came for him arguing over a baby? He was the one who had to make the decision, the judge, right? So many look at this and they say, well, this couldn't have been written by Solomon then. Because if this were written by Solomon, he would be blaming himself because if there's injustice in the land, he is the reason for it. What do you think about that? Butch? Well, you mentioned before uh, his Right? Okay. All right. Do you think that the kings of Israel judged every single matter and dispute? No. Do you think they learned from Moses and Moses' father-in-law? who told Moses, you're going to wear yourself out if you, if you listen to every dispute? Appoint those over thousands, those over hundreds, and let them hear those and bring only the big cases to you, right? Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Here is a king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, king in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, and we'll start at verse 5. He appointed judges in the land. Every king did. 
Here we have it recorded about Jehoshaphat. In all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, he said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, and notice this, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Do you like that concept? Because that's exactly what Solomon was just talking about. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bride. You know, if Jehoshaphat, as king, appointed judges and gave that instruction, this makes perfect sense for Solomon to be king and give such instruction. As Gina said, first of all, he realizes that he's not perfect and that he makes mistakes sometimes in judgment where injustice happens, but he also realizes there are lesser judges he has appointed who perpetrate injustice and oppression without his knowledge and contrary to his will. In verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and every deed is there. Notice that we're picking up again the theme of verse 1 and the poem of verses 1 through 8. A time for every matter and for every deed is there. The question is, what in the world does there mean? Where is there? Well, not here. it could be in heaven. It could be at the place of judgment. It's one of those cases, again, we don't know for certain. There's a good, strong argument for making it in heaven before the presence of the Lord. Now, Solomon gets confused. There's cynicism here. Notice what he says in verses 18 and following. He says, man is just like the beasts. Their fate is the same. What's wrong with that? What, what are the differences that Solomon should have known between man and beasts? All right, there's that one difference. What other what differences should he know, Becky? Man was made in the image of God. The beasts are not made in the image of God. Genesis. We have a conscience where animals don't have. Okay. God talks about man having a conscience. Doesn't say anything about animals having conscience. What else? Yes, Lori? We have the indwelling spirit. God dwells within us. Nothing like that is said about animals. Ed? God was the one who breathed life into man. All right. He breathed life into man. Do we have that statement made that way of the animals? No, they just appear out of the ground, right? He makes them. All right? So look at these differences. Solomon knew better, didn't he? He had to know better. He's the world's wisest man. He's a believer. He knows the Torah. He knows the law of Moses. He knows about creation. He knew these things. His condition at this point in time in his being away from God and drawn away from God has given him this cynical spirit and his confusion. The many wives and many gods that he served. That's right. But at least he wasn't right that we all do die. That's right. Okay, now, let's move one step further. Later, he says, he admits he knows. 12.7, he says, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The spirit of man, not of animals. He, he recognized. Is he maybe reiterating his life? And this is a, a biography or... Oh, yes, this is a biography. As I said before, this is, this is his spiritual journey. Yeah, he's, he's laying out his right. life as a well. How he came back to God. All right? Now, as we close, let's, let's ask this, because we'll stop here. 
We'll wrap this up, finish it up. We only have a verse or two left to finish. Next week, we'll go on to chapter 4. What evidence do you find in the Old Testament regarding life after death? Because there are many who look at this and say, see, he didn't believe in life after death because he's saying animals and men are alike. What are the evidences in the Old Testament of life after death? Diet? When David's baby died, he said, he can't come to me, but I can come. Okay, good. So here's the evidence, testimony of his father. Elijah taken up in the flaming chariot. Elijah the flaming chariot. Gary? Okay, where else? Anyone else? Other evidences? Who else do we have besides uh, Elijah? David's son. Yeah. Okay, that's what Dia just said over there. It's David's son. Yeah, Dia said David's son. She beat both of you to it. Enoch. Enoch we have. Enoch, Elijah. We have all these evidences, do we not, in the Old Testament? Again, Solomon knows better. Solomon knows better. Now, as we close today, do we know better? Remember the message this morning from uh, Keith Essex from Nehemiah chapter 9, the idea that uh, Israel failed to learn and complete, kept going through the cycle of obedience, disobedience, yeah, yeah. believing, unbelief, right? This is what Solomon's going through himself. Let's not go through it ourselves. Let's remember God's in control. He has appointed times for all these things. He's put a desire for eternity in our hearts. And we, like Solomon, should know the difference between animals and man. And we should know that there is an eternal existence, there is immortality, and that there is a future life. Right? Let's not forget it. In spite of what happens in life. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for everything you've given us. We thank you for the wonders of this book and for the message that we see here. And Lord, we ask this, that you would help each one of us to fear you, to reverence you, to stand in awe of you as we consider the aspect of time in our lives, the aspect of impending departure from this world, and as we look beyond the sun to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week. Thanks for those of you visiting.